the subject for the evening talk is the emptiness of the Dharma. One of the things which has, I think for centuries, had a considerable attraction to thoughtful men and women with these teachings is that there is a long history of reflection and inquiry and deep investigation and in a way an investigation which is very free thinking very free form of investigation and all the assumptions and the various beliefs which we come to treasure and uphold, all of that is worth investigating. No stone left unturned. And during the centuries, various teachers and students have engaged in conversations about life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, what is life, is there life on birth, change and death, on ego and egolessness, on relationship and communication, on language, on nature and human beings, on the world of this and that, all that has been investigated and gone into a great deal. And what has taken place over the centuries is that there has been and continues to be various dialogues between teacher and meditator, teacher and student, teachers and yogis, on all those things that you and I have been looking into during our days here. And one of the things which I and others have noticed is that the kind of concerns and the kind of questions which people raise are no different today than they were 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And that these events and happenings is remarkably similar really indistinguishable from conversations and communications about life and the nature of life and experience and thought that took place two or three thousand years ago. And the living proof of all of that is that the conversations just as they are today have been recorded in those times. And one only has to pick up Buddhist texts, one only has to pick up some of the uh, conversations recorded in the Upanishads, only look at the dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna in the Gita. And the many texts in the Zen, Theravada, Tibetan, Mahayana traditions and other traditions which say there is this ongoing dialogue ongoing exploration taking place 
in which people wish to understand in a level that makes a difference makes some kind of difference and in that all of that just as today what in the old days of course there were huge Buddhist libraries and those of you who have been to India may have visited the ruins of Nalanda one of the major Buddhist places of India and there were hundreds I think there's something like 10,000 monks one time living there and then there was the great invasion by the Mughals the Muslim Empire right through North India and the place was virtually destroyed and and as well as in Tibet and other parts of that world by invading armies and some of the history of the tradition was, was completely destroyed through war, through fire, through floods so many other factors but there's still enough has been kept to reveal and show to us that as human beings on the earth as caring and thoughtful people looking into things nothing has changed in centuries and sometimes when people direct a question to me or when I which I much prefer because it's easier direct questions to you that in the doing of that sometimes it flashes in my mind that that question was asked in the ninth century in a monastery in some far-flung corner of Asia and so somebody asked me a question and I asked them a question and I remember that same question in the same way was asked to the Buddha or by the Buddha the same question one can find that was asked in a cave in the Himalayas when a young person left the village and went up to see the master, the, the teacher living in that cave and, and some note of it was kept and found its way into that body of teachings called the Upanishads so here's this ongoing tradition of exploration questions, inquiry and the, the dynamic of it and what much appreciation I certainly feel much appreciation for that and for the whole expansive body of that tradition but like with anything including the tradition of Dharma like with anything if we hold it if we cherish it in any way and identify with it as being part of it or belonging to it then we'll never see its emptiness and I was once I remember one very very well known Tibetan teacher was asked a question and he was asked by another I'm so tempted to tell the names but I really mustn't asked by a very another very very well known teacher <laughs> is there anything that matters to you 
more than anything else anything which matters to you more than anything else and this Tibetan's teacher response to this question yes and that is my tradition that matters to me more than anything else the preservation and the continuity of my tradition and this other very well teacher told me this story and he was rather if I may say uh, impressed with this Tibetan teacher's response that his tradition meant so much he loved it so dearly and my response to, to it was what a pity mm-hmm. what a pity that, that that even the tradition as beautiful and appreciative and as long as it is you think of all the generations of teachers and teachers and teachers that he thinks that matters so much when either in that form or in the way that we relate to it the extraordinary thing is and a number of you in this room have had quite a few years certainly between you many years and some individually quite a few years of your life have been spent in exposure to the body of teachings and, and, a, and a wider body of teachings, of course, on the Buddhist tradition. And in that, there may well be, some are called New Age, because there have been lots of contemporary insights, and there are some very valuable things in New Age kind of teachings, and in contemporary psychotherapy and new forms, and there's a long-standing one as well. And sometimes we think, and teachers also think, they have a kind of, Um, a pure presentation of teachings they've kept it in its original spirit in its original letter or whatever and sometimes people listening think this is the real teachings I think in all of this and in looking into oneself here it's a huge spiritual myth because whatever you and I receive in the way of teachings from anywhere and I think it's worth going to the ends of the earth to find teachings and I have done so myself that in that there's how you are, how I am and the relationship to it and then what forms, what the residue of that forms often generalised views about life you receive teachings, people like me there's the internal influences which have to be there there's the mixture of that it forms a a sense of when somebody says to you what's meditation about tends to be a combination of what you've heard what you've experienced, what's occurred for you you put that together plus lots of other things as well books and conversations and it forms the picture, we've been talking pictures and stories during these days, it forms a picture of how it is and in that picture and the words and the whatever, that's what we relate to each other I use it as a metaphor for many other situations in our life 
We are picture people. We are story people. In that, as we saw this afternoon in the first of the inquiries this afternoon, there is a kind of residue which takes place on our consciousness. An impact, a kind of centre of reaction which takes place with us. And we have a, a view of this, a view of that, a view of something else, and there is movement with the view. Do you understand? This or this or this. So if we take it in spiritual terms for a moment, and then we'll put it in our other daily life terms. If you hear something during the days here, whether you like it or not, it's going to leave an impression. Because we're all vulnerable to the impressions of circumstance. And that impression leaves some basic ideas that Think of all the words that Christopher has said in these days. All the words that you have said in small groups, all the thoughts that have come in the mind, all the impact of the silences and the stillnesses and the body posture and the energies and the atmosphere. Put all of that that's been going on. The day is incredibly full. Hopefully so full you haven't got time to think about yesterday and tomorrow. And out of all the fullness of seven days, there's going to be some residue for you. you. We kind of summarize it into a simple and generalized way. Just as when you go traveling, think of all the experiences that when you go traveling. I went to India. What does India mean? India? Where, what is it? And out of all the time in India, that if you've been ever been there, and all that you take her out of it a, a little bit and it makes up the idea of what it is. You take the whole body of teachings, two and a half thousand years, and we make up an idea of what it is. Seven days here, an idea of what it is. So, if we do that in large spiritual, philosophical ideological ways my goodness isn't it going to be that we're going to be doing it in daily life as well I've got this situation I call my job I've got this situation called my home life I've got this situation called my relationship I've got this situation called my free time whatever and it's all going to impact think of what job means job, work, what does that mean? Think what goes on in, the, in that time called job. What is it that we're extracting out to say, this is my job? Think, of that, think, think what a relationship is like. Relationship sometimes touches far more feelings than the job does. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. Or fortunately, whichever, you, whichever way you go with your feelings. And Think of all that's touched in a relationship between two people. I'm not talking necessarily about lovers, I'm talking about parents and their children, or us as children with our parents, or with a friend, or with our neighbours. Or in the free time. So, out of all of that, we establish our ideological beliefs. We've selected 
we've put it together, we've made it something, and that something matters to us. It's all normal human life going on. But it matters to us in the relationship with something else. Your job matters to you in relationship to your home, your home, with your work, your work, with your free time, your mornings, with your nights. I say all of that's ideological. The idea of something and the belief that goes to the idea. And you say, well, since this is so common, centers of reaction compared to centers of reaction compared to centers of reaction, it gives us the idea. I've got so many choices to make in my life. I've got so many decisions I have to do. I've got so many things to sort out and so forth. What I'm saying is, I've extracted this, I've extracted that, I've picked this, I've picked that out, and now I've got these fixed views, and now, which one shall I do? What shall I do? It happens in daily life, it happens in spiritual life. I do this retreat, time goes by, I think I'll do another retreat. What's going on at the ward house? Well, there's that Zen Walla coming, and then there's the yoga, then there's the psychotherapy, and then there's the, um, the poor will know far better than I, then there's whatever, and then I could do that as well. But I've been to the ward house. Perhaps I should go somewhere else. Maybe I should actually, perhaps I should go to England and to Gaia House. But of course I could go to India, and it goes on. So there's Information, memory, possibility, thought, substance, and idea with the belief in the idea. And the ideology of which is best for me, which would work for me, which would be good for me. This we spend our life wandering from one idea to another. And the Buddha says this is called samsara. It means wandering on from one thing to another. And what is one thing to another? It's one idea to another. And we say, well, is there any possibility of release from this? Is it possible to be liberated from living in my ideas? <coughs> Just recently, as you know, as all of us know, there was the the, the, the the horrible tragedy of the of the Gulf War. Here's human ideas being acted out with extraordinary destructiveness. The ideas mattering with such uh, intensity that human life is subservient and ecological life to the idea. 
the idea matters, the idea ideology matters more than anything else. And we've seen the ongoing tragedy of the ideology in which there has been a complicity, I would say, of ideologies running through several years in which we have conspired with the military regime in the Middle East and through that whole momentum as it does with these things has the inevitable consequence that the complicity and then the fragmentation the conflicting ideology and the violence and this process has recycled itself and continued through human history again and again and again as we as Europeans know perhaps as well if not better than most parts of the world and so we see what goes on with this ideology that we make the generalized view that comes with it and the way that we live out of it subtle and gross you're saying so we're giving attention to all of this and looking as carefully and as sensitively as we can into this and we're saying is there another level of being that we can actually get access to which is completely free from all of that has nothing to do with it at all which puts us as it were into another state altogether in which all the ideas and the wavering and the doubts and the indecisiveness or in some cases the ideas of complete conviction and self-assurance, ego-assurance of I am right or we, whoever this we is, we are right so sometimes there's the attachment and holding to one idea fixed view self-conviction there, ego-conviction it needs always needs the support of others which forms narrowness or we are not sure and we jump about from as the Buddha said like, like a monkey from one branch to another from one idea to the other and we look at ourselves and we see sometimes we're one way and sometimes we're the other and what's so deceptive about it is that what we believe in, what we're so fixed on or what we're not, so, what we're not sure about and we're jumping back and forth with the ideas we believe that's the real issue that's what really matters having our ideas absolutely right, absolutely confirmed and following through or what really matters to me is I keep jumping about from one to the other and I can't make up my mind and that's what really matters either lots of movement and that's what really matters or no movement and that's what really, ma and that's what really matters and sometimes of course we're both and I say it's all emptiness it's not the issue at all 
It's the deception that we've agreed together in a kind of mutual human conspiracy to reinforce with each other. So when we're thinking this, this, that, this, that, this, that, or just this, just this, just this, just this, somewhere in all of that, I think we're missing everything. In Totnes, I some friends of um, mine, um, as many other places in the, in the West, um, organized a campaign, ours was called Campaign for the South Devon Campaign for Peace in the Gulf. The campaign took place of public meetings, large ones and small ones, and demonstrations, uh, uh, arts for peace, a, Peace uh, show, uh, demonstration, um, public uh, speeches in the uh, marketplace, and other forms, all expressing a concern and expressing um, our ideas and our concerns about the violence and the murder and and all that took place. And I think particularly in the la latter part of the war, in which it would appear that there was a massive uh, withdrawal of the Iraqi troops from Kuwait City on the road north to Basra and into Iraq. And certainly judging by some of the photographs that we have seen in the newspapers, it certainly would appear to me that the massive bombing of all those vehicles on that road, which were clearly in retreat, there were ordinary cars stolen from the Kuwaitis and trucks and buses and tanks and armoured motor vehicles all of them are completely wiped out, everything huge death and destruction and it may well be thought of as the, the killing sands of Kuwait as much as the killing fields of Kampuchea a massacre of human beings fleeing. All of this brought for some of us very deep concern about the whole way of thinking and the strategies of all that was used and the complicity that's been gone, going on for years, in the, particularly in the arms trade. All, all is a matter of concern. I spoke for um, five minutes on the BBC radio when we were engaged in our campaign, BBC Radio, Devon, Cornwall, that is for the West Country. And after I had a five-minute inter interview with the uh, BBC interviewer, I put the phone down and I went out to um, engage in this campaign with others. And when I got home, there was a message on the answering machine and a uh, listener to the uh, radio interview in the, in, during the news hour and report in the morning had heard the comments that I made and got my telephone number out of the book 
and decided to give me some feedback <coughs> over my answering machine on what I had said. And he began, he said, I've uh, listened to you this morning, Mr. Titmus, and he said, you are a traitor. And traitor. And then from there, went on to give a, uh, his various reasons for describing me as a, a traitor and went for maybe three or, or five minutes. And then I came home and, and the usual message, Gwainman, my exile, Christopher, I rang, could you give me a ring back and uh, somebody else. And then on came this message there. And what struck me in the, in the time was there are, it would appear, two different world views, two different ideologies. Myself making a small contribution for peace in the world and another person who believes in the necessity, the efficiency of military action against a uh, regime. So one asks oneself, because this situation arises in countless situations in our life, somebody has one view and opinion and a standpoint, and somebody else has a, another. That somebody else might be ourself. Can we look and see the emptiness of the situation? What would it be? What would it be to express a viewpoint? To communicate that as clearly and directly as possible? And it's as though one wasn't there with it. As though one had no part of that position. As though it was a viewpoint which one which was considered to be one towards peace and justice in the world, and a world free from violence. Yet, it was a viewpoint which was merely being expressed in the nature of things, in relationship to another which was different. The one who says, we have to work through non-violent means and hold countries and political military regimes accountable through other methods. And the other who says war and military intervention is the right action. Seemingly opposite, and yet once in the putting out that in the commitment and the involvement and the concern and the action goes with it, as though one wasn't identified with it, wasn't part of it. What, what, what kind of consciousness and even the ideas that one expresses have no foothold, no grip in the consciousness. One sees that the idea which is there, even if it's regarded as thoughtful and caring and sensitive and respectful, whatever way we flower it and describe it, one sees that that idea has no existence by itself because it requires the other idea for its existence. Understand? 
One can't have the consideration for peace unless one has war or conflict. Peace has no meaning without war and conflict. And one has looked into these things so as utterly as one's being will allow. One sees one requires the other to exist as an idea in this world. Therefore the whole structure of ideas, including the tradition, no matter how valuable it is, is empty of any self-existence. It exists because there are other ideas which exist differently from it. And see, my gut, my mind, my mind, my mind, what can I do? <laughs> to take up anything and have a position and any idea of no position to take any of that up is to get stuck. And sometimes, you see, either with the fixed position or sh the diverse position, shall I or shan't I, we can't go anywhere with it. The whole ideology structure, we can't go anywhere with it. Are we willing to abandon hope in the mind? What we've loved and cherished and invested so much in, made such a fuss about. So let's forget it. Just forget it. So that we, as it were, may allow ourselves to, as it were, drop into some, uh, some other level, some other state of being, in which all of our ideas and all of our concerns and all of our issues, they don't matter to us. They really don't matter. It's nothing to do with anything essential. And the more fuss we make about anything in life, the more fuss we make about it, the more it tells us the ridiculousness of it. So sometimes on retreats I say to people, the person says, I think so much about this. What to do with my life? Where to go with my life? How to spend my life? What's useful in life? Shall I keep doing this? Shall I change it and do something else? And sometimes I say to that person, please, you spend the whole day and you think, 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 think. And when you're tired, think, 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 think. And you think and think and think and think as much as you possibly can think. And then you'll understand what I'm talking about. You'll see, you'll realize the protest that will go on in the thinking, in the, all the mental activity, you're, 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 the thoughts we say, this is ridiculous, this is stupid, this is pointless, this has got to be dropped, this has got to be let go of. Even one's own mind will tell one that. You don't need someone like me and two and a half thousand years of tradition to tell you. Just think, think, think. 
And you see the response inside. Your mind will go, this is ridiculous, let go of me, let go of this thinking. Drop this mind. So the message is even from the mind with all its self and its ego structure and its philosophical ideas and its theologies and its buddhologies and its neuroticologies and all the others. One's tires of it. And when we're tired of it, so tired of it, whether it's personal day-to-day life things, or whether it's the so-called bigger picture, whatever that means, we get so tired of it, then we begin to feel we've got nothing we can take up. Nothing that we can really take up and say, this is it. We've seen the emptiness of it all, seen the emptiness of trying to preserve a tradition which our mind will constantly interfere with and add from and subtract to and make change because mind always changes what it makes contact with. There's no purity of tradition. We see all, see all that. We've got nothing, nothing, nothing to, to take up. Nothing that one can hold on to and say, this is it. One is utterly helpless. And what we've been afraid of our whole life, of being helpless, of being humbled by our efforts to have it right, begins to come down to earth to us. We just can't get a handle on life. We just can't get a grip on it. We are helpless. And if we don't understand that, we don't get that right, we'll live in our ego and our ideologies and our biologies and our scientologies and our buddhologies <coughs> and our philosophical ologies <coughs> and all of it is a complete distraction from knowing life. Because the only way we know life is by not knowing it. By recognizing our hopelessness in getting it right. And sometimes, say, oh wow, oh wow, oh dear, And sometimes the, as it were, that whisper, you might say, the whisper of appreciation or acknowledgement of emptiness, emptiness of a position, emptiness of a standpoint. And we recognize in our humility, in the humiliation of ourself, of our ego, We recognize the futility, the absurdity, the madness of having 
a this-is-it view. That no word out of anybody's mouth or anybody's pen or anybody's word processor or anybody's publishing house can ever get anywhere near saying what this is. We can't get a handle on it. So I think, in a way, in a rather wonderful way, Everything is different from what we imagine. And in a rather wonderful way, the only thing that makes sense is nonsense. <laughs> we see incredible effort in every respect to try to make sense of everything. We've never come across a human being who's achieved it. We've wandered the world from one religious teaching, spiritual, philosophical, traditional, new age or whatever. We've seen that the whole scheme of uh, concepts and ideas are really irrelevant. Something happens, as it were, inside which brings a, a humility and in our humility we, as it were, say it doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense. And it's not out of reaction or hostility or negativity or, or confusion or uh, panic or uh, anxiety. It comes out of a, a human being who has really taken an interest in looking. And whose heart can't say, this is it. And therefore there's a kind of falling in love with life. There's a falling in love with life because it doesn't make sense. And one can't make sense of it. And one feels grateful for that. Grateful that one can't put it into order. That one can't take up truth and organize it. One can't give a system and say, do this and it will give you nonsense. It will give you emptiness. 
One is grateful that there is no system, no methodology, no effort, nothing, which will make it all tidy. And this nonsense, this non-mind, can't be lost. Because it can't be found. And it's just mystery. Emptiness without any definition. in a way the wonder and beauty is so vast and mysterious that even nonsense even emptiness is nonsense with our mind and all of its dancing it's nonsense when the mind goes to rest and we touch a deeper place the mind stops it's again an express expression of the same nonsense the same mystery the same emptiness. But our thoughts don't hide it. They reveal it. So as the Buddha said, finally with the teachings, the Dharma, we're here to see not only the beginning of the teachings, not only the middle of the teachings, but also to see the end of the teachings, see the end of them. And then, what do we say? So I just say, oh, nature of things. Nature of things. May all beings be filled with wonder. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings abide with joy. 
Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please?